resurrection. Uh, without it, we would have no hope. Uh, we would certainly be the most pitied of men, as Paul says. Uh, we would be wasting our time here today. There would be, there'd be no hope. We should just eat, drink, be merry, and die. And Lord, that's quite the motto of the unsaved world. But not for Christians, Lord. You, you have radically changed our lives through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We have new life. We're no longer dead in our sins. And so, though we think of the resurrection every week, it is prominent to the gospel. This week, Lord, we focused in on it. And it has strengthened us. It has gripped us. It has captured us once again that our Lord made his way to the cross undeterred, died there, bearing our sins, our guilt, All of your wrath, Father, you poured upon him on behalf of us. He was truly the last perfect sacrificial lamb. And then they laid his dead body in that tomb. The wages of sin were death. So he was proven to bear our sins because he died. But Lord, you did not let him stay dead. Father, you raised him from the dead to prove that we have victory through Jesus Christ over our sins. And that is why we worship this morning and every morning as Christians. But we thank you, as we just sang. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing what we could not. For bearing our sin. For bearing our death. For beating the wages of sin and giving new life. We thank you. And we praise you for that. Father, we thank you for our missionaries that we partner with around the world. We know that they are proclaiming this same truth all across time zones of this globe. We thank you for them. Thank you that we can give to them, help them, support them, pray for them. We pray that you would strengthen them today. You'd give them great favors in their villages and cities and places where you've called them. Cause us to remember them. Lord, we think of those who can't be here today. Some are in hospital, some are gone through procedures, some are homesick and can't be here, and, and many are watching even now, Lord. We pray for them that you would strengthen them. Lord, if this is their final days, may they finish well, Lord. If they need to recoup, Lord, we pray your healing hand upon them and they'd be able to return and be with us. Lord, we thank you that you love us, you care for us, and you cause us to gather. That's the church, your gathered ones. We ask that you would be glorified in everything we've done here or sung, said, and worshiped and fellowship. May it all bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I will be in that count that Pastor Brian Giacquinto just read from 1 Corinthians 15, but I'd like to start in Luke 24, if you go there with me, and just read the account of the resurrection because this is going to greatly affect all of the apostles' teaching. It's going to change them in a miraculous way. Luke chapter 24 records this. This is the women headed for the tomb. They are still sorrowful. Death brings sorrow. What they saw was a dead body going into that tomb. And they are on their way there to honor the Lord Jesus Christ, even in his death. This is a great respect. They spent the Sabbath preparing, being ready to go honor the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pick up the story. They do not remember what Jesus told them yet. And neither do the disciples at this point. But soon they will have the Holy Spirit and they will never forget of what Jesus said. But follow along in this beautiful story and the reminder of the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. 
And then they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all of the rest. Now, they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the, and, the mother of the, uh, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. and They had not yet believed them. But Peter, Peter got up. And he ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. This is the word of God. Now, here we have this great event of the resurrection. Christians really hold and celebrate greatly three wonderful events that are key to our salvation. Certainly, the first event is that first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we call Christmas. Um, But it is the advent of his birth, isn't it? We celebrate that. Without him leaving heaven, taking on flesh, becoming like man, and and becoming a servant, and, and representing us, and being all that we are in his perfection, Oh, there's, there's no salvation. So we celebrate and worship Christmas, don't we? The, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The next celebration comes what we did Friday night. Often referred to as Good Friday, and it is Good Friday, let me tell you. As somber as it is, as we trace and watch our Lord Jesus make his way to the cross, undeterred by Satan and mankind, he's got to go to that cross. He has to. He says it was his hour. This was the hour laid aside for him. This was everything rode on him getting to that cross. And so we celebrate the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death. And we do that all the time. But Friday night, we took time to remember that in a unique way. And then the third celebration that Christians worldwide, those who are true believers, that faith comes through Christ alone. I want to make sure I'm clear on that, right? If you travel a little bit worldwide, Christians are people in the West, and then other people are, are Muslims and everything else, right? That's, no, 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 no. Christians are Christ followers, period. We put our faith in Christ alone, not in anything else, not in some church building or, or organization or anything else. Christians hold to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are absolutely gripped and captured that Christ beats sin, Satan, and death and comes out of that grave. That's who we are. And so that's why we're gathered here today. And if maybe you don't go to church very often, I would beg you to, to, to think about that. Is that what you believe? Do you believe in the first advent that Jesus came to this world, took on flesh, became human, now became our representative so he could die in our place? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he hung on the cross for your sins, not for just generally for everybody? Absolutely, that's not true. He died personally for you. Do you believe that? And do you believe that he came out of that grave, that God raised him from the dead and death could not hold him? Do you hold to that? Will you live for that? Will you die for that? That's, see, that's what a Christian is. A Christian isn't some winds of goal. Wow, I, you know, it's three things. I can't remember how they go, but yeah, I believe something. See, we're not walking aisle where he's a hand type of Christians. We are dedicated to our Lord. That's the way we sing, the way we sing, to preach the way we preach, live the way we live. Because that's what Christians are. See, everything rides on the truth of those three events. That's what we believe. You either have new life, eternal life, or you die in your sins. Hmm. Dear friend, if you're still in your sins, you will die eternally in those sins. And you will pay the wages yourself. But see, Christians know and believe with all of our heart, God has changed our hearts and our minds. And we believe that Christ took our place. And those sins were accredited to him. And we received his righteousness. So now we can go to heaven. We can stand in the presence of God all of eternity. That's salvation. And that's what we teach. The gospel According to Paul in Romans 10, 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, think about that, that he is God. He is ruler, sustainer, controller of all things. He is the one who can do what we cannot do. If you believe that, and then listen a little farther, and believe in your heart, not just cerebral, but in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be That's the gospel. What a beautiful testament. What a beautiful thing. 
Well, as you turn to 1 Corinthians, they had forgot this message. Christians sometimes do this. They sometimes forget with the busyness of life or their own struggles, whatever it may be, sometimes we forget the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we get caught up into other things, right? And for the Corinthian church, they got caught up in bad worship. They got caught up in man-centered worship. They were more concerned about what people thought of them than what was thought of Jesus and it really led them astray. From chapters 12 through 14, Paul has been trying to redirect their worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he concludes this first letter to them, he brings them back to the gospel. And guess what's at the center of that message? And really is the emphasis of the whole chapter 15. It is the resurrection. And I've kind of purposely timed to get here to this this time of year. And so here we find this church in Corinth. They had lost their way. You know what happened to them? The world influenced them more than they influenced the world. You see that? Maybe that's happened to you. It's happened to a lot of churches. A lot of churches are caving on all kinds of things because the world has influenced them more than they're influencing the world. Instead of the doors opening up with this great message of the gospel, they open it in and they try to please and appease. Well, that was what happened to the Corinth church. So Paul dedicates this entire chapter to the gospel, particularly the resurrection, in order to rekindle their love for Christ and his finished work. Well, we ventured into this and tiptoed into it just a little bit last week. And I gave you two evidences. I'm going to do three and four, but let me just recount that real quick. Number one, the first evidence of the resurrection is saving faith. Notice that Paul says in verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. So this is an emphatic declaration. This is what I've been telling you. Paul calls them, he's calling them to full attention to the gospel. I gospelized you is the idea. I brought you the gospel, I proclaimed the gospel, I taught you how to live the gospel. This was the evidence that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He goes on to say, notice which you also received. You mean receiving there is the idea of taking in a gift. God gave this to you. And you, you received it. You believed it. And then you not only received it, but notice you stood in it, in which you also stand. You become rooted and grounded. That's a Christian. A Christian is rooted and grounded, unmovable in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That's a Christian. And Paul says, you received it, you stood in it. And you stood on the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried to prove that you die, that, that death, sin kills. And then he was resurrected to prove that you have victory over that sin. And then he says, by which you were saved. So you received this gospel, you stood in this gospel, you, you now presently and continually hold that truth if, notice he says, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now that's a pretty scary term, unless you believed in vain. It, it could be pretty sad in heaven where a lot of people, at least coming to the great judgment of, from God, the great the great white throne judgment of God where he separates the sheep and goats. And many people say, well, I believe the message. Well, a lot of people believe a lot of things. But does it change their life? See, that's the difference of saving faith. Faith, Saving faith converts you. That's why we call it a conversion. It changes our direction completely. Hell bound to heaven bound. Godless pagan living to Christ loving living. Right, a very, a very different life. Not because we have to, because God changes because now we get to live for him. So Paul challenges them that, hey, is this resurrection really what you're rooted in? Or are you just rooted in something that you want to get out of this? That's pretty much a lot of what the prosperity gospel is today. Oh, yeah, this Jesus is really good. And by the way, he wants you healthy, wealthy, and rich, and all that stuff. And so, well, maybe I'll just buy this Jesus for a little bit. See, that's believing in vain. See, Paul told them later that they should test themselves to see if they're of the faith. See, there's a great difference between some academic head knowledge and what a true worshiper is. But if you have faith, 
that is in vain. That means you put your faith in yourself, not in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the doctrine of perseverance. The persevere, those who are saved persevere, right? We don't, we don't persevere to get our salvation. We persevere because we are saved. That's what causes us to keep going. And yes, we're not perfect. If you're here and you're visiting and saying, wow, hey, these guys sound pretty good. Hey, we're not perfect. We have a Savior that's perfect. And he keeps transforming us into the image of himself. He keeps bringing us along. And we keep by faith that he has given us to live according to him and walk according to him because we have new life in him no matter what our circumstances well that was our first evidence he uses the gospel to show the evidence of a resurrected christ second we see in verses three and four the evidence of a resurrection in the infallible scriptures pastor brian read this he said for i delivered to you verse three and four first importance what i've also received that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures make sure you note that and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day here we go again according to the scriptures so the the second evidence of the resurrection is it comes from the infallible divine revelation of god's word it doesn't come from Scott's word, which is very fallible. Ask my wife. <laughs> I, I'm not perfect. And I don't preach my words. What's beautiful about what you get to do up here is we get to preach the, the infallible word of God. Now, that's a challenge, right? Because the preacher's fallible. But what we find in this is infallibility. Jesus Christ came out of that grave. He beat sin, Satan, and death. That's what the Bible teaches us according to the scriptures. And this is what was delivered. Notice this was what delivered to you in its first importance. He was commissioned, Paul, to deliver this to. First, first importance, this was priority. The first was the, the, the chief, and you received it. You received the word of God like you received Christ himself. Remember, we looked at Galatians chapter 1 where Paul said, look, I, I didn't go and get this from even the other apostles. I got it from Jesus Christ. And there we saw in that first chapter of, of Galatians 1 and then also in Acts 9 where uh, Paul is led out into the desert. He spends three years with the Lord Jesus Christ revealing all of this truth to him. And so he was given it to us. He delivered it to us and we received it. And so we see the priorities of first and fourth and death, burial, and resurrection according to the scriptures. These are three indispensable truths and keys to our salvation. Christ died for our sins. He was buried to prove the wages of sin. And the Father resurrected him to show without a shadow of doubt that Jesus beat sin, Satan, and death. And his work was complete and final. So we are not here, if you're visiting today, we are not here in any way doing this to gain salvation. We stand justified through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't get more justified, more righteous, more right with God by coming to church or doing those things. We have been declared righteous. It is our standing. And now we, through the grace of God, fight our flesh to follow him. And again, it, notice at the end of those verses it says, according to the scriptures. Well, this is what the Bible taught, right? All the way through the Bible. Every type and picture all through every lamb that was sacrificed every blood that was shed every blood that was brought before the altar all of those were pointing to a fulfillment in the lord jesus christ the writer of hebrews says we could never satisfy the wrath of god through the blood of bulls and goats there was something greater it was the lord jesus well now we come to what i call the third evidence of the resurrection of the testimony which is the eyewitnesses. Num number three here, the third evidence of the resurrection is the testimony of eyewitnesses. Look at 5-7. This is beautiful. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of them remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now, Paul continues to build this foundation, this biblical foundation of evidence of the resurrection, and he turns to eyewitnesses. Notice he says, I appeared to Cephas. Now, when we, when we read that passage in Luke 23, there we, we, we don't get told the story. It's, it's said in other places. But the Lord Jesus personally appears to Cephas, to Peter. And, and that's on the very first Easter Sunday morning. That was, <laughs> that was the Easter gift to Peter. Peter had just not too many 
hours or days before this, had denied the Lord Jesus Christ vehemently. That he ever had anything to do with him. And so here what we begin to see is as Paul begins to explain the evidences of the appearance, he starts in somewhat of a chronological uh, way. He first brings Peter into it. And, and think about eyewitnesses. They're, they're one of the greatest testimonies in a court, aren't they? Somebody saw that with their own eyes. And, and here, so he starts with Peter, the one who denied him, the one who walked most, probably closest with the Lord Jesus. He's always part of that inner circle. He's the one who said, Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll even die for you. And the Lord said, no, you're going to deny me before the cock crows. And here Paul says about his counterpart, his his other apostle, he says, the Lord appeared to Peter. Oh, does Peter go on to be a trustworthy apostle, doesn't he? He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is willing to suffer. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and the Lord restored him. We know that in John chapter 21, those three denials of him. The Lord makes him <laughs> repeat who Jesus is and put his faith in him three times. John chapter 21, there on the shores of Galilee. Peter is transformed by his eyewitness of the, of the resurrection. He is willing now to lay his life down. He leaves everything for Jesus. And he's even willing to die. And look at this. He dies, historians tell us, like Jesus on a cross. Now, I think Christ's appearances, what they do is they testify to the authenticness of the event. That's what this is doing. There's an authenticness to this event, to world history. And this is why Paul keeps saying he appears. He keeps saying this over and over. You look through this. He appeared first. He appeared, appeared, appeared. And I think the best evidence of a resurrection is that Christ keeps showing up. When you read this, he just keeps showing up. He keeps showing up to event after event, group after group, people after people, showing over these 40 days that he is indeed alive. He's not somebody's figment of imagination. He's the physical and glorious, resurrected, fully man, fully God, truly man, truly God, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we see over and over. He appears to the disciples on the Emmaus Road. That's an amazing event. Luke chapter 24. And who can't forget his appearance to Mary Magdalene? Boy, she had everything invested in him. She's coming out of who knows what, probably everything from prostitution to, to homelessness. You, you just, when you study her life, you just, she was so ravaged. Seven demons were called out of her. This, this woman was ravaged. And the Lord appears to her. Emmaus Road, Luke chapter 24, verse 34, they said the Lord had really, had really risen. He t they're telling Jesus, right? Remember, they're saying, well, where have you been? You don't, you don't know what's going on here? And he said, this is what happened. He really has risen from the dead, and he even appeared to Peter. They're telling Jesus the story because they don't know who he is at this point. So the very apostle who vehemently denied him is an eyewitness, appearing to Peter, and he restores him. Then it says the 12. That's kind of an official title for the disciples. They were known as the 12. Judas has gone and hung himself already. He's out of the scene. He will soon be replaced with Matthias and many other men who will come and be a part of the pro gospel proclamation. But these men went on to preach the glorious gospel. They preached a bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So key. Not some spiritual, sparkly guy um, floating around they preach the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to get into that more in the weeks to come here. And listen, it would cost this group everything. And they were so convinced that the sight of a resurrected, bodily resurrected Lord Jesus Christ that they would lay down their lives even to the point of death. Look at verse 6 with me. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now, this is an interesting statement, not just the apostles, but now others. In fact, a congregation somewhat the size of this. I know we can pack them in seven, from five to seven hundred in here. And so, so think about this. Someone close to this, this is what the Lord Jesus appears to. Isn't that fascinating? And Paul adds that many of them were still alive when he wrote this. Notice it says at one time. Look at that in your text. 
So most likely this is a reference to that gathering of the, of the early church. When the, when the Lord Jesus Christ had been resurrected, the apostles were preaching, and most likely this early church has, has now exploded, and many people are coming to know Jesus Christ, and there's gatherings like we do today, and they're gathered maybe in a room like this of some sort, and he, he comes and reveals himself physically to them, and he did this at one time. What a gathering. Jesus shows up to it. Praise the Lord. I think he's here today in spirit with us through the Holy Spirit. He lives within all of our hearts of us believers. But he was showing up physically to us, and many, many believed. Um, they believed in him. And, and, so, and some teach, and, and I, I think it's, it, it's close whether Matthew was written yet or not, but many believe that 1 Corinthians, when it was written, none of the gospel recordings were even um, written yet or at least being able to be circulated in the way they were soon after this. And so, not only do you have the living word appearing to people, it is happening before the written word is written down. He's doing it physically. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I would love to sit with one of these brothers and sisters and say, can you tell me again what that was like? Thomas, can you tell me? about what it's like to hold Jesus' hands and look at his scars? Can you tell me about that? See, this was going around this early church. Look at verse 7. And then he appeared to James and then to, also to the apostles. Well, James certainly could be two of the apostles that had that surname with them. They were named James. But I think more evidence shows that this is the half-brother of the Lord. Now, what's interesting about James is he was one who denied the Lord. His own brother, his own half-brother, denied him. John chapter 7 tells us that they, they just wanted Jesus to be king so they could get something from it, right? They said, Jesus, leave here. Go to Judea so that your disciples may see your works, what you're doing. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. That's what they wanted, not what Jesus wanted. Jesus came to die, not be king at that point. And then he said, they said this, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds this in his commentary. This is John 7, verse 5. Not even his brothers were believing in him. Mark chapter 3, verse 21 said they thought he lost his senses. Oh yeah, that's our brother Jesus. He's crazy. This is how they thought of him. What an amazing transformation. You know, this is you and I before we're saved. Jesus is kind of, well, yeah, he's out there. Some people just hate him. Some people are just indifferent to him. But this is what we're like. We're transformed. And, and I love this. As I was working on this this week, I thought, Lord, this is a good reminder never to give up on your family members. Never give up. All it takes is the Lord revealing himself to them. And he does that through the Spirit of God. He does that through the Word of God. He does that through witness and testimony. He does that through preaching and singing. He does that in so many ways. And God can bring someone in your life to expose them to the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be forever transformed. Keep praying for your children, for your loved ones, those who deny Jesus Christ as co-workers. And listen to this. Peter and James are such a great lesson because both of them were deniers of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet they became great proclaimers of Christ. This is what the resurrected Lord does for people. Notice it says there at the end of 7, then to all of the apostles. To all of the apostles. Well, Acts chapter 1, Luke is given an account, verses 1 through 5, to Theophilus. And he says, I began doing all this and teaching you about what he teached, what he did, and what he taught until the day when he was taken up from heaven and after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles. So the Lord Jesus appears to them and gives them orders. This is what Luke's telling us. Whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a 40 a uh, period of 40 days and speaking to them concerning the things of the kingdom of God, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not in many days. And what he's speaking about is the birth of the early church. When God sends his own spirit to reside permanently, and he did that with this group of people, and particularly these apostles, put the Holy Spirit in them, and the church was birthed. And we find the great sermons in Acts chapter 2. 
And the Bible tells us just a little farther down in Acts 1 that at this gathering there was about 120 persons. So I think, well, at least 120 persons there saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. They saw him. Now, one of the church had so much go to it early on, right? We get a little lazy and a little lethargic, don't we? Well, we, we just have the Bible. What? Hey, it's time to wake up, Christians. We have the Word of God. It tells us everything we need to know, way more than the early church had. We have Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament all pointing towards Jesus Christ. The New Testament all reflecting of what happened to us from the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the transformation that takes place. And these people, as special as they were, we now have the completed Word of God. Fourth evidence of the resurrection was the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 8 through 11. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain. For I labeled even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Well, what a tremendous point here. Paul is possibly the last person on earth to see Jesus. So the scripture says. I think that really shoots a big hole in a lot of the wild groups that are out there. That Some guy comes out of the desert and says, yeah, I just returned and I saw Jesus. The Bible says he was the last. But don't be jealous. <laughs> don't be jealous that you haven't seen Jesus. Because Jesus teaches about us. When he meets with Thomas, remember Thomas had a real difficulty uh, believing that he was resurrected. That's why he has the surname Doubting Thomas. I think it's unfair. There's other places where we see Thomas uh, did wonderful things. Uh, he even right before, um, after, after the Lord said, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Thomas actually says, let's go with him. Let's go die with him. I mean, so, so don't be too hard on Thomas, but, but yet he struggled. That first appearance, that Easter Sunday night, he wasn't, he wasn't there. So he comes back a, a week later on the next Sunday night, and there Thomas is there. And Thomas makes a statement. He says, you are my God. You are my Lord, my Savior, and my God. Tremendous statement. Statement you and I should uh, say often. But then Jesus says to him, this is what I was thinking about us here, because we have not seen personally or physically the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We see him in the scriptures and God gave us faith. But here's what Jesus says to us. Because you have seen me, Thomas, and you have believed, right? Blessed are they who did not see me and yet believe. John goes on to say, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in their presence of the disciples, which are not written in these books, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe that you may have life in him. Blessed are those who believe without laying our personal eyes on him, but believe by faith through the scriptures that Jesus is who he said he is, did what he said he did. Blessed are you. Blessed. You know that word means blissfully joyful? Are you, are you blissfully joyful that you have seen Jesus Christ by faith through the scriptures? See, Peter picks up on this. He was sitting right there in 1 Peter chapter 1, 6-9. He says this, it, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, right? That gold stuff everybody's after, perishable. Even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, he's talking to you and I. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you have not, do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know what that verse says? We have joy because God gives us faith and that outcome of my soul is salvation. Wow. Oh, so, hey, look. You haven't laid your physical eyes on Jesus yet, but you will. You will see him soon. By death or by rapture, you are going to get into his presence and you're going to see him and he's going to greet you and he's going to receive you in and he's going to call you his faithful servant. He's going to welcome you in as his own brother. Brother. 
That's how glorious it is. And God will give us an inheritance, joint heir inheritance with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 8, 9 again. Paul says, last of all, as one untimely born. Well, he says, he appeared to me, the untimely born one. I think what he's saying here is one who didn't walk with the Lord Jesus as one of his disciples, but the very one who persecuted the church. I was an unbeliever. I was a hater of Christ's church. I was an unworthy sinner. Um, I, I, I was a Jesus hater. I was the chief of sinners. He calls himself the foremost of sinners. That's how Paul refers to himself. This is why he uses such language. But in chapter 9 of this book, in 1 Corinthians, verse 1, he says in a question form, but a statement, have I not seen Jesus? He's defending his apostolic position, right? An apostle has to have seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. That's why there are no apostles. I'm pointing down the street. You have to see Jesus. That's, that's, he's qualifying who he was, right? And so in verse 9, he's telling us, Paul says, I'll never forget my glorious salvation because I received undeserved mercy that God poured out on us. Never forget where God brought you from. Don't run back and live in that wretched sin that God saved you out, but you don't forget. See, this is what Paul does so well. He, he has what I call the doctrine of remembrance. He, he says, once we once were dead in our sins, enslaved. He brings us back to that, to remember the glory of salvation. Because Christians, you know what we do some days? We let our trials cause us to forget what God has done. And then we lose our joy. We don't lose our salvation, we lose our joy. And so Paul reminds us. And I, as I thought about this, Paul sees the resurrected, glorious, bodily resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So why would he fabricate some kind of story? What good would it do? Listen to what happens to him for, for standing on the gospel of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just time is moving on me, so let me just read to you. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as insane. I so more in far more labors. Now listen to this. In far more imprisonments. You, this is what happens when you, Paul's going to say, you want to follow Jesus? This is what my life has been about. This is why he can't fabricate things, right? Far more imprisonments, beaten without number, often in dangers of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only know of one in the scriptures. There's three, he tells us. A night and day I spent in the deep. I have been frequent on journeys, in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the brethren. Do you get the idea? Let me keep going. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And we kind of complain sitting out there today that we won't go there. Apart from such eternal things, there is the daily pressure on me of concerning all the churches. Who is weak without being my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concerns? Boy, do you feel this as pastors sometimes. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weaknesses. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. What prophet would Paul have to say if he was to lie about a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. All of that, he would go all of that to keep some story going? Oh, these men and women in the Bible suffered greatly because of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Well, notice in verse 10 that Paul attributes all this to the grace of God. He knows his sins are forgiven. And let me tell you this, a forgiven person who knows their sin has been removed, also has their guilt removed. It's one of the differences. I, I want you to think about this. If you think you're a Christian, not only do you believe that your sins are forgiven, but the guilt of that is gone. Paul says in several places, my conscience is clear. Oh, really, Paul? 
the killer of Christians, the imprisonment of the way, the church. You separated and broke up homes. You, you, you destroyed family life and all of that. He said, yeah, but Jesus forgave me. And he cleansed my conscience as well. And he gives us all, look at verse 10, he gives us all to the grace of God. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, right? I can't go back and fix what I've done, but God has taken grace and he's used my past, he used my salvation, and he continues to use his grace in my life today. What an amazing testimony here. His grace towards me did not prove to be vain. So by the grace of God, he allows us to properly examine our past, I think that's what we do, right? Peter's, but Paul says, forgetting the things that are past and pressing forward. So I want you to think with me, brothers and sisters. There is a way we examine the past, and we should go back and say, yes, God, I was dead in my sin, and boy, was it awful. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, you came down and rescued this wretch. I remember being a youngster and not saved yet, and when we'd sing that old song, you know, and that word wretch would be in there, and i go, ugh, that was kind of a hard word to say about me. But once I got saved, I loved you. In fact, I started shouting it. Because <laughs> I was a wretch. I was deserving of hell's fire. But God saved us, and you go back, and now, see, grace makes you look at your past different. It makes you realize that he actually uses your past and brings his grace into it so that you can preach the gospel. You can say, look at me. I was on the way to hell. And God saved me. And I don't have to be some, you know, guy or gal who, who lived a certain way. It doesn't matter. All of us. It doesn't matter how you lived. You were headed to hell. We're all sinners. He makes us beautiful through his grace. And so that's why Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Remember, don't forget what God has brought you. And that's why Paul tells us that God's grace was not given to him in vain, but instead God's grace produced faithfulness and fruitfulness in his life and ministry. And if the resurrection is not true, then he and the rest of the apostles are the most pitied, verse 19. What a bunch of losers then. They spent their entire life, died on crosses upside down, stoned, martyred, and some of them with their heads cut off for a false teaching. That's why Paul says we're the most pitied. This is why he uses his own life. So Paul exhorts on the truth of the power of the resurrection it caused him to first see the depths of his sin. That's what grace does. When you meet grace, when God saves you, grace helps you see the wretchedness of your sin and the gloriousness of your salvation in Jesus. That's when you know you're saved. That's when you know God has transformed you. Now, he says, I labor even more than all of them. Well, this isn't boasting. This is not Paul boasting. We can tell the way he lays out his life. He's trying to help a church that has been um, mean to him in a lot of ways. They have not been accepting of him as apostle sent by God. And, and so, but he says, look, I, I have labored more. And I think that's just evidenced by the churches, right? We have 13 known epistles, inspired epistles. Whether he wrote Hebrews or not, we don't know. But, but he wrote 13 of them. Way more than any of the rest of the apostles. The countless churches and the missionary journeys, we see that God chose to use the apostle Paul, this violent aggressor against his own people, God chose to use him in a major, in a major way. And we, and we marvel at that. But notice he qualifies this statement by saying, yet not I, but the grace of God, right there at the end of verse 10. So grace motivated service to a resurrected head of the church. Can I say that again? The reason we serve the Lord is because we are gross, excuse me, grace-motivated servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church. We do not serve the Lord. We don't come here on Sundays and Wednesdays and do Bible studies and get discipleship and all that because we're trying to get some kind of brownie points. Oh, no. That'd be foolish. We come because grace has gripped us undeserving sinners now have an eternal position with the Lord Jesus Christ. My sins are gone. They'll never be brought up again. There's no condemnation to those in Jesus Christ. There's no separation. Never will I be separated. When I die, I will instantly be with my Savior, the Bible tells us. That makes you want to live. And guess how long we're going to live? Forever. How long are you going to be on this earth? 70? 75? 
maybe into your 80s. That's it. But you're going to live for Jesus, so grace motivates us here, doesn't it? Look at verse 11. I love these last verse here. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Remember when we were just studying it, when we were in our little series on Luke 15, that when someone comes to faith in Christ, when the lost is found, all of heaven, including God, rejoices? See, I think that's what he's doing here. So whether it was I or they, we preach, you believed. Praise the Lord. I don't care if you got saved from your grandmother, led you to Christ on your bedside at a VBS. I don't care if you walked an aisle and truly believed. I don't care if you were saved sitting on your toilet. I praise God whoever shared the message with you. That's amazing. And that's what Paul's saying. He's, he's amazed at that. He's amazed that God would do something like that. And so Paul says whether it's him or Peter or the 12 or the 500 or James or anyone else, we are unified that the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ saves people. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. That is the great blessing. And from the early church, from this moment on, without exception, true Christians have preached and taught salvation comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. That's why we sing songs, Christ alone, because somebody's always trying to add something to it. Right? There's none righteous, no, not one, because there's always that guy. Right? We're all in desperate need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in closing, I just want to share just a couple of things. I want to tell you just gifts of the resurrection. I love this. I can just give you some verses because I'm out of time here. This is a gracious gift of salvation, a gracious gift of, of the resurrection. One, your sins are forgiven. A dead Christ who doesn't raise from the dead, you go and I go to hell. The resurrection proved our sins were forgiven all of them colossians chapter 2 12 through 13 he raised them up to forgive all of our sins praise the lord how about assurance romans 4 25 says he was delivered for over for our transgressions he was raised because for our justification we are justified that word means he declared us eternally righteous that's the only way you can be in the presence of God for eternity. If you've still got sins on you that aren't, that aren't forgiven because you didn't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can't go to heaven. There are none unrighteous in heaven. That's justification. That comes when Jesus was raised from the dead. He gave you new life. And he, gives, he takes away the agony of death. You, know, you think the agony of death is maybe dying a horrible death? Maybe dismemberment or something? That's not the agony of death. The agony of death is being separated from the Lord Jesus Christ for eternity and being judged. The Bible says he took away the agony of death. I might die. I may not make it home today. I have no assurance of that. But here's what I do have assurance. I will never see the wages of sin. Jesus took that for me. I think it leads to worship would be the next avenue. The, the resurrected Lord Jesus gives us worship, verse 54. But, the, but when the imperishable will put on imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sin? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. That's worship. Resurrection brings worship. The resurrection also brings the glorification of Jesus Christ. The Father said because he laid down his life, he gave him everything. Jesus himself said, as he appeared to disciples before his ascension, he says, the Father has given me all things, everything. He now is the right hand of the Father. He is the authority of, of the Godhead. What a beautiful statement. And Jesus, and the Father said, because he did that, he said, every knee will bow before you. Every tongue will confess you as Lord. The resurrection brought the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is glorified. And then finally, the resurrection gives us evangelism. 
Amen. Who can keep this story in? Who can, who can, can, can you let somebody go to hell? Now, certainly we don't have control over God is sovereign, does all that, but can you not tell them about this message? Oh, see, the resurrected Lord causes us to say, can I tell you what Jesus did for me? You don't have to call them out on their sins. Just tell them about your own sins and how Jesus saved you. Oh, it'll be amazing. The Spirit of God will take that truth from the Word of God. He'll save people. Resurrected Jesus brings evangelism. Father, thank you for this time in the Word today. Oh, time just kills us here, Lord, because we could talk about you forever. And we want to, and we look forward to that. Your perfect plan took your own son, dressed him in humanity, made him like one of us, but without sin. Born of a woman, born under the law. Had to keep the law perfectly. Lived his life, 33 years, without sin, being tempted in all ways. And then, Father, you hung him on a cross and you judged him like he committed Scots and everyone else who believes he com- like he committed our sins. So unfair. So unjust. And yet that was your plan. You had him laved in a grave to prove that he was dead. Sin had killed him. But he didn't stay there. On the third day, our Lord rose from the dead. Victory over sin, Satan, and death. He was resurrected bodily. They touched him. They, they, they felt him. They spoke with him. They walked with him. He was their savior, their resurrected bodily savior. He had a body like we'll have someday, Lord. And we glorify in that, Lord. We, we're amazed at that. And so we pray, Lord, that this would be a message we cannot keep to ourselves, that we would share this over and over, even though it may cost us, like these apostles in this early church before us, may we share this great message and we'll be willing to follow you no matter what you ask. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.